Our reading this morning is taken from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through to 15. And we're reading from the NIV. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was very hungry. I can imagine. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus then returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. For anyone that doesn't know me, my name's Chris Cullen, and it's uh, my privilege as a member of the church to be leading us today as we come to God's word. So let's pray together. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, reveal your truth to us today. Grant that we may be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray, Lord, that through this church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Amen. Okay, so I've got some slides here and... Um, I'm going to be going through the first few fairly quickly, but I'm not controlling them, and it's been quite a morning, hasn't it? <laughs> um, so uh, my apologies to uh, Amy, who's on slides, if I'm going too quickly. But um, this is a very familiar passage, isn't it? If you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably read it yourself. You've maybe done Bible studies on it, and very likely you've heard sermons on it. 
And the passage tells the story of the temptations of Jesus by the devil. And it shows Jesus overcoming those temptations by quoting scripture. And so, of course, the application for us is that we should read our Bibles more and memorize scripture more. Put your hand up if that sounds familiar to you. I see one or two hands here, and I'm sure there's a few at home as well. So, how do we do that? Well, I thought it would be helpful if I mentioned just two tools that I've been finding useful recently. And in this electronic age, they're both applications on my phone. Um, so, I've got a little couple of applications there on my phone. And I'm so grateful to our pastor, Jonathan, for inviting us at the beginning of this year to join him in a Bible reading plan this year. And so I've been using the, the Version Bible app um, for that, which, uh, and others are doing that in the church, which is great. And I've found it quite encouraging that there's others reading at the same pace, um, some of whom are here today. And, it, and it's, it's good to see the comments that people are making as God's interacting uh, with people through his word. And I've found that is helping me to stay on track with my Bible readings. And secondly, uh, I've been trying to memorize scripture. Uh, for about 18 months now, I've been doing that. And a couple of months ago, I thought it'd be really helpful maybe if there was an app that could help me with this. Um, and I found this fantastic one called Verses. It's a great little tool. It's got a variety of mind games that help you to memorize verses and it tracks your progress. So there's uh, two applications. So that's it. Sermon done. Let's go home. Well, I heard some years ago, Pastor Erwin McManus from Mosaic Church in Los Angeles said near the beginning of a sermon on prayer, he said that he was worried that people would think that the goal of the sermon was that you would pray more. And, you know, I'm a bit worried that you might think that the goal of this sermon is for you to read the Bible more and memorize more scripture. I even considered not sharing those two apps because it's so easy, I know, to zone in on something like that because it seems practical and tangible. Um, but I am concerned that you might think that the goal of this sermon is to get you to read the Bible more and memorize Scripture more. That sounds weird, doesn't it, for the pastor of a church to be saying that, not that I'm a pastor here, but you know what I mean, like the person up the front. But the problem is that if, if you're just trying harder to read more and more scripture and to memorize more, you're no different to Mormons who are trying to do that with the Book of Mormon, or Muslims who are trying to memorize and be more diligent in reading the Quran, or to Buddhists who are spending time reading the Tripitaka and other writings of the Buddha's teachings. In fact, if you end up going away from here today thinking that that's the goal, is to read the Bible more and memorize scripture more, then I've become like one of the Pharisees loading burdens on people's backs. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that reading the Bible and memorizing scripture is a bad idea. Let me illustrate it like this. Um, and on screen now, we should have a lovely picture of a meal. Nice piece of steak and a couple of sides. If you take a nice big mouthful of the mashed potato, and particularly if it's silky smooth with some garlic butter through it, that's beautiful, isn't it? And if you take away the idea that 
it's good to read your Bible and to memorize scriptures so that you can resist the devil. That's, that's really good. But there's so much more meat in this passage. And you know what's even better is when you take a nice mouthful of steak with the mashed potato. Now that's sensational. So, what's the stake in this passage? Well, the big question that we're looking at today is what is the temptation narrative of Jesus really about? And to understand that properly, we need to look more broadly, not just at uh, verses 1 to 12 of chapter 4, And actually, uh, Jonathan asked me to preach on chapter 3, verses 23 to 38, which is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I thought it would be really terrible if we had Alan have to read all of those names that are unfamiliar. Um, You can thank me later. And in actual fact, we need to go from verse 21 of chapter 3, where God endorses Jesus as the Son of God, and commissions him as his agent of salvation, Jesus, Son, and Saviour. And then we have the genealogy where Jesus is recognised and and qualified by his heredity. Heredity? Got that word wrong. Hereditary. By his family tree, he's qualified to fulfil the Old Testament promises as the Christ. Again, Son and Saviour. And then in the temptation narrative, Jesus aligns himself with his role as the Son of God and as the Saviour sent from God. So when we look at that all together, we get a much broader picture of what the temptation narrative of Jesus is all about. So let's look at that now. Starting with Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. In last week's message, Tim touched on the point that in Luke here, this is the the point where the focus shifts from John the Baptist who was the one who would prepare the way for Jesus, and the focus now shifts to Jesus, who is God's salvation, who gives light to those who sit in darkness, and is the Saviour, Christ the Lord. So the focus now is on Jesus. But at the beginning of that verse, we read that when all the people were baptised, so there was lots of people that came out to John to be baptised, and they were baptised for the repentance of their sin, And Jesus also was baptized, identifying himself in humility with everyone else who was baptized, although he didn't need to be. In fact, in Matthew's account, John the Baptist says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replies, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so the Saviour comes alongside those that he is sent to save. After his baptism, as Jesus prays, the Holy Spirit descended on him 
we're told, in bodily form like a dove. I think the idea is that this is not a vision. It's not some esoteric thing that John the Baptist saw or that only Jesus saw. Everyone who was there saw a physical dove flying down. And John tells us, um, John the Baptist, that is, in the book of John, in the Gospel of John, that he saw the Spirit descend and remain on Jesus. Now, we don't know where the Spirit was, but you can imagine if a bird flies down, a dove flies down and remains on Jesus, maybe he was sitting on his shoulder. But to me, that gave me the idea that, you know, it's a bit like uh, in medieval sort of times or movies that you might see, and and a king is there, and and a, a valiant fighter has come before the king to receive a knighthood and the king takes a sword and taps the sword on both the shoulders of the valiant knight to confer on them a knighthood. It's a bit like that. Here God the Father is anointing Jesus, if you like. He's conferring on Jesus that he is the Son of God, his beloved Son. It's not quite the perfect analogy because before the king you know, knights the knight, he's just a valiant fighter. Whereas Jesus was already the son of God. So God's not sort of giving him a new status, but God is confirming that he is the son of God. And this is important for us to understand the difference between Jewish culture then and Australian culture now. Because in Jewish culture back then, To be the son of a father meant that your um, purpose for life was to do the work of your father, to be um, not, not a servant, but to be a representative of your father, to be about the mission of your father. Um, That sort of status is shown by a parable that Jesus tells us in Luke 20, where a man goes and plants a vineyard and he lets it out to tenants and he goes far away to a a far country. He's gone for a long time, but while he's away, he sends a servant to gather some fruit of the vineyard from the tenants, which was the right of the owner. But the tenants physically abuse the servant and send him away without any fruit. And so the owner says, Um, well, I'll send another servant, and the same thing happens to the second, and then a third servant, the same thing happens. And so then in the parable, the owner says to himself, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Now you see how Jesus in this parable uses that phrase, beloved son. He's clearly telling us that this parable is about the father and himself, But in the parable, the the tenants understood the status of the son. They knew that he was there basically as a representative of the father. It might just as well have been the father who was there for the son to be there. And so they decide that they will kill the son. And they think that by killing the son, they will receive the inheritance of the son. That they will not have to move. If we kill him... Who knows where the father's gone, but if we kill the son, well, then we can just stay here. 
the son embodied the father's mission. And so here in the book of Luke chapter 3, as the Holy Spirit comes down on Jesus and as God speaks, together they acknowledge, they announce, they declare that Jesus is the Son of God. And that means that Jesus is God's representative on earth here to carry out the mission of his Father. The second half of what God says to Jesus is, with you I am well pleased. Jesus was baptized at the same time as lots of other people were being baptized. And the Holy Spirit didn't descend on any of those others. And a voice from heaven didn't speak about any of those others. But you can imagine that if you or I had been there and we'd been baptized by John, and if God had spoken something to us, he would have said perhaps something like, your sins are forgiven. Because the people were coming and John was calling them to a baptism of repentance for sin. But here, God comes down and speaks to Jesus. He doesn't say your sins are forgiven because Jesus was sinless. He says, with you, I am well pleased. Who can stand before God and have him say, with you, I am well pleased? I can't. None of us can. Because we know that he is holy and righteous. And we're aware of our own sinfulness. But Jesus is there praying before God and God says, with you, I am well pleased. That's an endorsement, not only that he is God's beloved son, but that he is a sinless beloved son. Holy, righteous, and pleasing to God. We move on to the genealogy. Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. And this passage is framed at the, the beginning with the passage from, with the, the story of Jesus' baptism and the anointing. So we have the, the references to Jesus as the Son of God there at the beginning, and also at the end, the very end of verse 38, it says the Son of God. So having gone through all of the genealogy, Jesus was the son as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, and I'm not going to read it all, but you know how it goes. And then near the end, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So before and at the end of the genealogy, Jesus is declared as the son of God. And it's also framed by Jesus' solidarity with all humanity. At the beginning, Jesus is baptized with the others who are baptized. And then at the end, he's called the son of Adam. Adam, the first human. And as a son of Adam, well, we're all sons of Adam and Eve. And so Jesus is identified with all of humanity. Uh, just a bit of an aside, which I thought was worth sharing. When you read through all of these, the son of, the son of, the son of, and there's all of these names and you don't know any, well, some of them you've seen in the scriptures elsewhere, but a lot of them you don't know anything about. And they're all dead and buried. And one of the commentaries I read by J.C. Ryle is, um, 
He's an old Anglican well, Church of England pastor from hundreds of years ago. He makes uh, really wonderful, insightful comments, and he says, let us always bless God that in a dying world we are able to turn to a living saviour. All of these people died, but Jesus is alive today. Isn't that great? That's just a bit of an aside. Um, As we read the genealogy at the beginning, we read, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. That was the normal time that Levites would begin their service at the temple. It was the age where, as a Jewish male, you were considered to be fully mature and ready to commence that sort of um, Levitical service, service of God. And so it's fitting that that was the age that Jesus began his ministry. And we then read, he was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. These flag us back to the earlier narratives in Luke, which describe the virgin birth of Jesus. And commentator Joel B. Green says, while characters within the story, so people that are described in the gospel, will view Jesus as an ordinary human, the son of Joseph, Luke's readers should share with the narrator a different and correct view. Jesus is only the apparent son of Joseph. In fact, his identity as the son of God need not be traced back through Joseph to Adam at all, which is what this genealogy does, but rests on his miraculous conception. However, the genealogy provides Jesus with the legitimation needed in the world in which he would carry out his mission. So for all of the people that Jesus taught to who looked at what he was doing, they would have been able to find out because Jewish people were very concerned with family trees and family history and what tribe are you from and you know what's the lineage of your ancestry. They would have been able to see that he was legitimately someone to whom the promises about a Messiah could apply. Someone who could be representative of David and Abraham to whom covenants were given about a coming Messiah. And so Jesus is recognized both genealogically and biologically as the son of God. And his status as a representative of Abraham and David and all humanity is affirmed. Again, the theme coming through the passage is that Jesus is the Son and the Savior. And so now we come to the narrative of the temptation of Jesus. In chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we read, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. Yeah, nice nice aside earlier, Alan. Yes, we'd be very hungry, wouldn't we, after 40 days? 
It's important for us to just take note of the role of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is anointed and filled with the Holy Spirit following his baptism. He returns from the Jordan River full of the Spirit, and then he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And after the temptation, when he returns to Galilee, he returns in the power of the Spirit and begins teaching. Secondly, I want us to not sort of gloss over the temptation of Jesus, thinking, well, of course Jesus was able to resist temptation. After all, he's the Son of God. Think for a moment about the temptations that you face and have faced in your life. The sins that you struggle with. Have you ever cried in anguish because of the suffering of temptation? In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says to the Hebrews, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's talking to them, but I don't know about you. Have you ever struggled so hard against sin that you've been at the point of the shedding of blood? I've never been in that situation. But he then uh, has told the Hebrews that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, endured the cross. Consider him, says the writer to the Hebrews, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus went through unspeakable horrors on the cross while people taunted him and said if you are the son of God come down from the cross he could have he had the power to do that but he endured the cross for our sake but we mustn't think that it was easy for Jesus to resist the temptations of the devil then or in the passage we're looking at. Again, Hebrews in chapter 2 talks about Jesus being like us as humans because he took on flesh and blood. And in Hebrews 2.18 it says, For because he has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We mustn't think that somehow Jesus just, you know, as a light fancy, oh yeah, there's, this, there's the devil, he's tempting me, that's okay, see you later devil, I'm going on my way. This was difficult. Jesus suffered with temptation, Hebrews tells us. Leon Morris writes, clearly he faced questions like, what sort of Messiah was he to be? Was he to use his powers for personal ends? Or was he to establish a mighty empire on earth that would rule the world with righteousness in opposition to the Roman Empire? And I think there's another subtle little point here that suggests that it was difficult for Jesus. Um, who, who was with him in the wilderness? We're not told that anyone was with him. And I think 
just about everyone that looks at this assumes that he was on his own, that the only others that were there were the Holy Spirit and the devil. So how do we know what happened? Well, Jesus must have told the disciples who have then recorded it. It's in three of the Gospels. And so in his telling to the disciples of what happened, he's clearly talked about it being 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. That's a long time. It's pretty intense. I don't know about you, but for me, temptation tends to be a fairly short-lived sort of an experience, perhaps because we're moving on with life all the time and something else comes up. But if you're on your own in the wilderness, no mobile phones, no internet, no distractions, being tempted by the devil for 40 days, that's hard work. The third point that we can note about the temptation narrative is the parallels with Deuteronomy chapter 8, particularly verses 2 to 3. I'll just read Deuteronomy 8, 2 to 3. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. This is God speaking to the children of Israel. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of of the Lord. So in Luke 4, verse 1, Jesus is in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, Jesus, uh, the people of Israel are in the wilderness. Luke 4, Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. Deuteronomy 8, the people of Israel are in the wilderness for 40 years. Luke 4, Jesus is tempted by the devil. Deuteronomy 8, we're told that they were in the wilderness so that God could test them to know what was in their hearts. Tempting, testing. Luke 4, Jesus was very hungry. Deuteronomy 8 tells you that, that God let the Israelites hunger so that he could feed them with manna so that they would know that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. There can be no doubt that Jesus was thinking about this passage during those 40 days and that he would have been aware that this was a time to test what was in his heart. And so from the text, as we read the temptations, we see that Jesus actually responds. Firstly, from Deuteronomy 8 to the first temptation, and then to temptations 2 and 3 from Deuteronomy 6. The first temptation, Jesus was hungry. And the temptation is for him to miraculously turn the stone into bread. It sounds like a challenge, doesn't it, to the identity of Jesus. If you are the Son of God, says Satan. But it's not actually a challenge to the identity of Jesus. Um, Just... 
think about it. If Satan challenged you or I with that question, if you are the son of God, turn this stone into bread. Well, that would be a challenge to our identity. Prove that you are the son of God by doing it. And of course, it wouldn't be a temptation to you or I because we're not the son of God. We don't have the power to turn stones into bread. But for Jesus, he did have that power. He was the son of God. He is the son of God. And so that is a real temptation for him. He's very hungry. He's been fasting for 40 days. And it seems perfectly reasonable to me, and I'm sure to you also, for him to turn a stone into bread so that he could eat. He's finished his, his time of 40 days, mirroring the 40 years of the Israelites in the wilderness. Why not provide for himself a meal? But he quotes Deuteronomy 8. Man shall not live by bread alone, it is written. What's in the heart of Jesus? Will he keep the commands of his father? Will he trust his father to provide for his need? Or will he take matters into his own hands? He trusts the father. Verses 5 to 8, the second temptation. The devil takes him up, shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. To understand the power of this temptation, we need to carefully think about the world as it is. We have a tendency to to think from the end of time. We have the revelation of Jesus to John. We know that at the end, Jesus wins, that Satan is banished to the lake of fire. And we have the temptation to read that back into today and and perhaps to not realize or acknowledge that Satan has great sway in our world today. Three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses the phrase, speaking about Satan, ruler of this world. In John 8, 44, he says of the devil that he was a murderer from the beginning, a liar and the father of lies. In Ephesians chapter 2, he's described as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says that Uh, In their case, speaking about people who are unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan is alive and active in our world today. And Jesus knows and understands the deception and bondage that people have to Satan And he's there as God's representative to be the saviour for them. So can you imagine what the temptation must have been like for Jesus? Because he knew that his road ahead was a long and difficult road that would ultimately lead to the cross. Instead, he could bypass all of that by simply worshipping Satan, who would then give him all of the kingdoms of the world and Jesus could then set up 
his kingdom of righteousness and the people would be set free from bondage to Satan. Like so many temptations in our lives, it's framed in the terms of the end justifying the means. The end here being people belonging to Christ and the means being by worshipping the devil. But again, Jesus resists by quoting Deuteronomy. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And finally, the third temptation. Satan takes him to Jerusalem and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and, and having realize that Jesus is using scripture to refute him, Satan decides to use scripture to try and trap him. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Again, if you are the son of God, but he's not really challenging the identity of Jesus, he's challenging Jesus to use his power or to test God, is God trustworthy? And again, Jesus quotes from scripture, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Throughout the temptation of Jesus, what is happening here is that Jesus is aligning himself with his identity as the son of God and with his purpose as God's redeemer and savior on earth. Who do you think Jesus is? In the book of Luke, we've had Elizabeth testify to who Jesus was. We've had the angels. We've had Luke himself as the narrator and God himself testify that Jesus is the son of God. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Have you accepted him as the savior of your life? Jesus being the son of God is the representative of the father on earth. Son and Saviour. But God is so gracious that He invites us. He invites us to come to Him, and when we do, He adopts us as daughters and sons. We are now His representatives on earth. We have a different role to Jesus, obviously. He's the Saviour, but our role as His representatives on earth now is to be ambassadors of Christ. To let others know that he is the saviour. Have you committed yourself to the work, to the mission of God in the world? Part of that is committing yourself to this church. Part of that is committing yourself to use your gifts that God has given you for his glory in ministry to others. Have you committed yourself to his mission that all the world might hear the good news? And that can seem scary, can't it? People that you work with or at uni with, at school with, relatives that maybe don't know Christ and are 
openly hostile to him. It can be difficult to be an ambassador for Christ in your world, in our world, can't it? Praise God. He doesn't leave us to do that on our own, but Jesus promises us, and we're told in the book of Ephesians that when we believe in Christ, we're given the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who empowered Jesus in his ministry is given to us so that we can be his agents in the world today. And finally, you can be sure that when you commit yourself to God's mission, that you will also draw the opposition of Satan and that you will face your own moments of temptation. In those moments, leaning on our Saviour Jesus, who by the power of the cross has defeated sin and death and hell and Satan, leaning on him, call to mind the scriptures that you've been reading, the scriptures that you've memorised which speak to us of our saviour and you will be able to resist the devil. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that our Lord Jesus is Christ the Lord, the saviour, the Messiah, the one who died for us, who endured the cross for the joy set before him the joy of seeing people reunited with God. We pray, Lord God, that we might be faithful as your adopted daughters and sons to play the part that you have prepared for us since the foundation of the world, to do the works of ministry that you have prepared for us and to tell others of our wonderful Saviour Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.